Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Room for Growth. Excited to be with you today. Billy, you and I were just on the road together. Two straight weeks on the road. We had an amazing on-site with our team who uh, was working remotely. We, we got them together for the first time. So that was kind of cool. The classic, wow, you're taller than I expected you to be. But then last week, we were uh, in Chicago at CRMC, which is a large conference where the best and particularly the retail industry come together to talk about customer engagement. And uh, it was a lot of fun to be back on the road again. I'm exhausted. I think my sleep debt has hit a, an all-time new high. I'm not used to doing this, but uh, it was a fun conference, right? It was super fun. Yeah, I thought some of the speakers were great. We heard a lot of the same themes from everyone that we heard from. But I, my favorite session, to be totally honest, was hearing from Ulta. Yeah. So first of all, I loved it because we were sitting next to a couple of people from Sephora while we were listening to this uh, big talk about how successful Ulta's loyalty program has been, which of course was my obsession because I'm a Sephora loyalist. I talk about Sephora all the time and how much I love their loyalty program. But have to totally agree, Ulta's loyalty program is also exceptional. We were even bantering with a team from another retail brand about like why those two brands both have exceptional yeah. loyalty. So we were talking to a third big retailer about the differences between like Sephora and Ulta's loyalty programs and why they're both so great in market. But Ulta gets up and they're really talking about what they did to drive loyalty among their beauty enthusiasts. And one of the things I really loved about that talk was they started with their fans themselves. They started with beauty enthusiasts, right. with their core market. Um, they, of course, were very inclusive in how they talked about who their audience was, but we're also not shy to say, like, we primarily cater to women who love beauty products. And here's why. Yeah. And it was just interesting to have them go back to some of these core principles of who do they serve? Who do their users? Who are their users? What are those buyers' core needs? Why do they become fans of Ulta? What are they looking for? What are they waiting for? And how has Ulta really capitalized on what their needs are, what their excitement is, and what types of purchasing experiences they're looking for. So I thought that was super fun. What about you? What do you enjoy most? But before I share that, that Ulta, that 95% of sales come from loyalty members was the stat they threw out, which is kind of set me back. I, you know, almost wanted to raise my hand in the middle of the conference. Like, okay, can we break down these numbers? Like, how did you get there? Because that is incredible. So certainly something to look into. In similar vein, I sat in on the North Face session where the head of loyalty marketing for North Face spoke about how she built the loyalty program from the ground up for, for North Face. And what was struck me is it was very similar. She started and they started with their audience and really what drives their audience. The challenge that they highlighted is they have, I mean, who doesn't own a North Face item? You can buy a basic t-shirt, but you can also buy an outfit that you would go summit Everest in. And so they have this wide array of users from these intense enthusiasts to, you know, the person that really just wants something warm when they walk to work every day. And so how do they build a program that can fit both of those? So, but again, it was like the same core principles, maybe a little bit more complicated where they don't have just this one user profile 
but who do they want to build their loyalty program for and how can they hit some of these audiences? So it was that, that same core principle, but yeah, it was awesome to get on the road with you. Awesome. There's so much more. There's one other thing from CRMC before we talk about our amazing guests that I just was blown away by is the amount of platforms that are in the space. I knew this and we know the space pretty well, but as we're walking the kind of the sponsor floor, every single vendor is saying they can do the same thing better than the other vendor. Some vendors say they can do the same thing as four different vendors combined. And I just kind of felt for people like, wow, how on earth do you make a decision as you're embarking this space? So it, it doesn't surprise me because we're hearing this from our clients, but it's just the kind of the flood of vendors in the space is, is a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, of course, this is my passion space. So one of my spaces where I think we give value to our clients, but it's also just who we hire in our growth practice is people who love to actually take these new platforms, go learn them, go figure out what's great about them, go figure out the UX, how to use them, what capabilities they actually have and how much result they actually drive when you start to launch campaigns. So I loved that because I think in particular, loyalty vendors are just in a state of both disruption and development right now. There's a ton of different players in the space. There's some monoliths who have been around forever. There's new up and comers. There's also a lot of problems in loyalty because it's hard to find a vendor who integrates really well with also great channel messaging platforms because often those capabilities overlap. It's hard to find the right level of analytics in those platforms and whether to rely on them for everything or find a player who does kind of the niche fulfillment piece of loyalty. So I enjoyed that. One of the platforms that I want to call out as interesting, I don't know how well they work, is Optimove. So they basically said that they had just acquired a piece of AI that would help bring recommendations into how they do loyalty and messaging. They're a platform I'll check out. I can't endorse them right now. We don't know anything about how they work. And anytime a piece of technology like that is formed because of an acquisition, I'm immediately skeptical because generally native built features into that piece of software tend to perform significantly better. But that's certainly a need in market right now is how can we make smarter offers to our different segments and our consumers? So I'll definitely go check them out. But for the meantime, you know, I think the best in class remains you have your engagement platform, you've got your customer data platform, you've got analytics, and you've got loyalty working separately so that you can continue to be flexible, agile to the needs of your users. Right. Well, I think that's a good transition for our guests that we have today because um, the way to not choose your stack and build your stack is by walking the conference floor and hearing from the, you know, grabbing the lobster rolls from this vendor and hearing what they have to say really approach we take and would recommend taking is to kind of take a step back and think about the user. What are the core things you're trying to accomplish and drive? And our guest is somebody that we have both worked with on a regular to do this. She has process and a really strategic driven mind to get into the head of the consumer and build up a program that's, again, not sales driven from the conference floor, but more user driven. And that's the core elements of the people we saw speaking on the stage and why we're so excited to bring Margo on today. So with that, let's get to our guest and talk to Margo. All right. Well, today we're really excited about our guest. This is somebody that when I have a kind of a a gnarly project here at Willow Tree, or there's an opportunity to really re-envision something from the ground up, kind of a greenfield opportunity type of project, I say, I want Margot on 
this project. And so Billy and I were talking like, really, it's so easy to get to platforms and CRM, CDP, like what platform should I use? But so often that's kind of the easy problem to solve or not really the easy problem to solve, but that's a problem to solve. Too often people skip the strategy of how they're building out these programs and these products. And that is really where Margot comes in. She's one of our strategists here at Willow Tree. And we wanted to have her on the podcast to talk a, a little bit more about building a product strategy and, and how that, that plays into this overall ecosystem of building a great digital product. So Margot, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been a product strategist here at Willow Tree for about five years. I've had a lot of fun. Of course, I've touched a lot of different client work in my time here. I usually find myself in a space where it's a really ambiguous, broad question. Um, broad is the room the client says, we know we want to have an app. Not quite sure exactly what that does, but in the end, we want to drive more viewership. We want to see a lot of engagement, whatever the case may be. And that's where I'll work alongside our research team, analytics architects, and others to help come up and with that vision of what that looks like. Sometimes the need is really for something long-term, something that everybody can rally around, something that, that can be executed not just right away, but maybe in three years, something big and inspiring. And sometimes it's a very tactical roadmap that is part of our output. Of course, it's really helpful and valuable to collaborate closely with our design team in that process, because as much as I'd love to believe in the strategic vision that we can share, I think it's really valuable for our clients to actually visualize and see what it looks like in terms of a prototype and a concept. Yeah, I think if anyone's wondering, why do you bring a product strategist, especially somebody who is familiar with going from basically no app to the first version of an app onto a podcast where what we're really talking about is how do you grow through marketing? I think one of the things that I see frequently that we see among our clients is that product strategy and development teams tend to be very siloed from marketing teams. And that's just a huge miss from the very beginning. I think what we know at Willow Tree is the more tightly you can develop product features with the marketing experience and those automation components to make email push and app messaging SMS just an extension of the mm -hmm. app experience itself. You can even mimic the UX patterns. You can mimic the design. You can mimic all of the sort of like interactive modules that you might see. You are going to have a more performative marketing strategy and a more performative product. Yeah. So I thought it'd be fun today to really, Margo, talk to you about what you think about the app space, how it's changing, how product UX is changing. Combine that a little bit with how we think about growth. Because to be honest, when I first started at Willow Tree, you were one of the first like rock stars that I met where I was watching what you're doing and I was really learning your language and learning some of the methodologies that you use to develop an app. And now I bring those into marketing as often as possible. Because again, as much as you can match sort of like people and process to the vision of what they're trying to create together is just going to make everyone work more closely. So yeah. now at Willow Tree, I am responsible for training a lot of our folks on what it means to drive engagement through channel messaging. And you are still responsible for training everybody on what it means to develop a great and engaging app. So forces unite today. Yes, it's awesome to be here. And it's interesting you, you talk about that. I just feel like when we start thinking about a roadmap and execution, a lot of what the questions we're being asked sometimes relate to feature prioritization and where do we begin? And I think so much of the mediums of communication that you're talking about and the way that you talk to your user base, if you think of them just as like add-on features, oh, we'll have in-app messaging, add that in, that's not going to get you that strategic marketing plan. It has to be part of this holistic plan uh, from the very beginning. 
Yeah, totally. Where each of those channels has its own unique strategy, but way that it fits into what is the experience that you're trying to create Mm -hmm. in the app itself. Yeah, totally agree. But before we really dive into how you build an engaging app, one thing I want to talk about is how you go on an awesome trip. Because Margo, (laughs) you are a huge world traveler. I'm really curious if you could talk to us about some of your favorite places and how travel inspires your work. Yeah. So I was thinking about this question and I think, so I would say travel is very much like very core to how my identity and what I think is really important, but it would be kind of foolish to overlook how it ended up to be the case that I had so have so much experience traveling. For my first job out of college, I was working in the public sector and for about seven years, about 50% of the time I was traveling globally. So I spent a long time um, traveling around Asia and as well as Europe and then an ended up doing an expat assignment in Europe. And so it was interesting because my travel is, of course, there's a lot of leisure travel that were components. I had lots of weekends in Tokyo and exploring sights and sounds, but I actually was doing software implementation. So it was travel, but there was a deep tie to technology and how people were using technology in these locations across the globe. And so as I was reflecting on my experience as a traveler, I enjoy travel. I think it's really important for all of us as humans to go out and leave our bubbles and explore and discover. And we learn a lot about ourselves and a lot, a lot of, about other communities. But it, it also, you know, is very valuable to understand how people use software, use technology elsewhere to make us the best technologists that we can be in recognizing even just the subtle variances in those different user populations. So some of my favorite destinations that I've ever gone to, I'm going to hold back. If I could be a Francophile, I would like you love Paris, but some of the smaller towns that have really meant something to me and left such a strong impression. I love Lauterbrunn in Switzerland, which is a beautiful little village in the Swiss Alps, really just geographically stunning. I love Hoi An, Vietnam, which is a beautiful canaled village in central Vietnam. And then I lived in Heidelberg, Germany, and it is a really stunning university town in Germany that was just a beautiful place to visit. So would recommend I also love Hoi An. Did you know that? That that's one of my no, favorite places. Yeah. Beautiful. The key I heard through all that is the best way to get out of the United States and to start traveling more is to find a way to get paid to do it. Is the, Ooh, that's the one thing. I that's the lesson there. Yeah. That is the life sure tip. I, I start talking to some folks to see if they can make that happen for me. Is <laughs> yeah. any of the countries that you've gone to, have you ever been like just caught off guard and amazed by a technical advancement of the way they use technology in a way of life that isn't something that you see here in the U.S. on the day-to-day? That's a great question. I think it's really interesting to recognize how different technologies are being utilized, perhaps quite differently than how we use them here in the U.S. and even between different age groups. So we have probably, you guys probably touched on this, but kids are very comfortable using voice technology. My one-year-old son says, hey, Google, like yelling at the Google Home Hub, which is kind of sad, but also hysterical that he knows how to invoke Google. But there's a comfort there because it's familiar and it's something that they've always known. Emerging markets are also a huge adopters to voice technology. And I'll share why that is. So the iPhone was introduced in 2007 here in the US. And then it wasn't until seven years later that Amazon introduced Alexa. So 2014. And so we had our mental models here in the U.S. kind of see those things as two different entities. And there's onboard assistants like Google Assistant that are kind of crossing that bridge and helping to bring that together as a holistic digital experience with your device. 
But in the developing world, many consumers largely just bypass that PC era, PC age. And then due to limited disposable income, things like iPhones and these really advanced smart screens are just not widely available. So instead, manufacturers have started building things like they call feature phones. And so on these feature phones, these are really cost-effective devices, but they have voice technology in them. And so they can use the voice skill and the phone will produce the results expected, show the Google search results. And it's a very simple execution. And for that reason, there's just this wide adoption of voice tech versus here in the U.S., which is remarkable and fascinating just to recognize how what we see as innovative is pretty commonplace there. Yeah, that's super interesting. I talk to our clients a lot about that when they're making technology choices to determine like which carrier they might use to send, push, or SMS. Because in a very similar way, when you talk about the iPhone being introduced to U.S. markets in 2007 and that being such a revolutionary date, most of the monolith CRMs that you think of, the Salesforces and the Adobes of the world, those technologies came about long before I think Salesforce came to market in 1999. So you can imagine that something that was built to message users in 1999 may not meet the needs of an iPhone user uh, when that technology wasn't even introduced until 2007. There wasn't such a thing as a push notification or an SMS. And so it's interesting to think about how those technologies, when they're integrated truly from the beginning, Mm -hmm. it's a completely different user experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's like retrofit versus, yes, it makes sense. Margot, I just want to zoom out a little bit because some of this is super fascinating. But as you know, we talk about a feature like voice, which, um, you know, we could be head down just a, a long talk about that. But if you zoom out and I'm a marketer and my organization has tasked me with figuring out how to either determine whether my organization should have an app or there is an existing app, it's not meeting the expectations. And I've been tasked with figuring out how to kind of measure it up at a really high level. What do you see as keys to a really great app experience? And where do you even start? How do you think about that? Yeah. So of course, it's going to be deeply dependent on the industry and the function. I think one thing that we use often in our strategy practice is the jobs to be done methodology of just recognizing what the user is hoping to accomplish. And so I think alignment in how that app helps them get the job done that they're trying to get. But I think just is to quickly kind of break it apart between what I see is, I'll just call them like leisure apps or the hobbyist apps. And what makes them interesting in my mind and differentiated. I really am impressed when an app, which is on a very small piece of real estate on your phone, is able to invoke the same emotion that you had when in the matching physical experience. So as an example, during the pandemic, I got very interested in estate auctions. We all had our hobbies that we pursued and we're not expecting to pursue them. But I just thought it was really interesting treasure hunt of learning about furniture and I got interested in the mid-century mod. I'll spare you guys the full details on that. But there's an app called Live Auctioneers. If you open this app and you have it scheduled and you participate in an estate auction, let's say it's a Saturday morning, when you're in the app in this estate auction, it's like a takeover experience, you get that same emotion of the energy of the bidding. And so you can see the live, the bidding back and forth, the competition between other bidders, The UI and the UX, it's not perfect. There's definitely some clunkiness there, but it does make you want to participate. It brings that excitement of what it would mean to hold up that little placard if you were actually at the estate auction. I think that's pretty hard to do. And I'm impressed by how Live Auctioneers does that. Another one, another hobby and exposing myself here is there's an app called Picture This. 
And so this can help you identify plants in your inside or outside in your garden. But more than that, taking it a step further to diagnose if there could be any issues. So if you got to move that dying fiddle leaf fig over to the corner for a little more light, it will tell you to do that. And so I think there's obviously something academic that's happening there, but that discovery process makes it enjoyable. And so there's some emotion in the aha moment. Awesome. So the jobs to be done framework that you mentioned, that's something I know we we use a lot. That's a, a published framework that if a, one of the, one of our listeners wanted to go yeah, Clayton figure that out and use it in their own practice, that's something they, yeah. they could Google and, and find out, right? That's right. That's right. Because Clayton Christensen is the one that really helped evangelize jobs to be done. But it's a great way and kind of mindset for thinking about why we create software and what it's going to accomplish for our end users. I want to pivot just a quick moment. Maybe this is just to help um, kind of make a strong case for why I think it's so important when we think about very task-oriented apps that we might engage with, I think the effort to reduce decision paralysis or the, all the fatigue that occurs when we are overwhelmed. And I know right now there's a lot of noise. We are very overwhelmed when we open up right. our phones and look at content. I think the apps that do it well to help make life a little easier and narrow down what you should do and how you can accomplish the job you're seeking to do I think that is an art as well. I wanted to just call it, I read The Economist. Their app has surfaces eight articles every day that they advise you to read. And that's based on, I presume, popularity and my reading history. There's a lot of news to keep up with these days, but it's really helpful to have that simplicity. Another one, Rent the Runway. So I'm a renter. Billy, are you a renter? I'm not. I've <laughs> done it, but I'm not doing, because they have multiple tiers, right? So you can like rent a dress for an event. You can do it one time. I've done that before for special events where you need like a dress that you wouldn't typically go out and purchase for yourself, but you do want to feel like a glam queen for a day. But then there's also a subscription tier where you're just ongoing, finding yourself clothing, putting it into a cart, returning it very similar to like almost a food subscription or a grocery subscription. Yeah, exactly. Rent the Runway, I think they've received some press for their investment in algorithms for making recommendations on various garments you might want to rent. But I think they did a great job thinking beyond just that set of recommendations, but rather understanding the point of a recommendation is to help somebody make a decision. And as part of the decision for renting a garment, it's actually, you want to see kind of proof that it will work for you. So if you were to open up the product page on Rent the Runway, so you're looking at one dress, I would argue that perhaps their secondary CTA is actually the user submitted photos of that dress in the wild, because I think that helps you make that decision. So they've really elevated the user reviews, the user feedback in order to ultimately, me as a user, make the decision on the, the, the garment that I want to rent. So I think it's just helpful just recognizing ultimately what is it that I am a user trying to accomplish, trying to fill my cart, trying to rent again, and help me not spend time in the app, but actually just get the job done that I'm trying to do. Yeah, such an important component for the marketing piece as well. When you're thinking about, first and foremost, you want an app to drive engagement because of the value proposition that it offers. So for instance, on the Economist app, the value proposition there is we will curate the news for you in a very similar way to how people used to consume a newspaper where you could sit down for a reasonable amount of time, Mm -hmm. get caught up on daily news and events Mm -hmm. and sort of do that at your leisure. Well, then when you think about how to pair marketing on top of that experience, the way that you double growth, you double engagement, is you not only say, here's the value proposition, have an experience of a daily paper in your normal day-to-day life, but on your phone now in a really clean, curated way, 
specifically for you. But then we're going to pair some like automated push notifications that know what time you prefer to read the paper so they can remind you that that content's available for you at the time that you might normally use it. And then also use messaging that reminds you, hey, get caught up on world news today. It will only take 20 minutes. Yeah. So I think sometimes that is how marketing can sometimes miss the mark of coming back to what was the original value proposition of the experience that that app was trying to invoke in a user as the way of convincing them to reopen, reopen. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting because if we go back to the job that the economist that I'm hiring the economist to do is I want to feel informed. And so I think having contact like touch points like the ones you're suggesting help me to ultimately get that job done of feeling informed. There's a breaking mm-hmm. news event, whatever the case may be, you know, I have my morning coffee. This is the perfect time for me to get caught up. Yeah. yeah. But even as a point of like brand differentiation, we we're just talking about this with Domino's Pizza, for instance. Domino's, their strategy you know, now the taste of Domino's pizza is quite good. I would argue I like the taste of Domino's pizza a lot. Heck yeah. But <laughs> exactly, yeah, we'll we'll argue about who has the best delivery pizza here in a moment. But for a while, Domino's pizza strategy was really to be the fastest. They wanted to deliver a pizza faster than anyone else in the business. That's why it gets to your door so quickly. And now how they reinforce that in marketing messaging, just that like value proposition overall, is you receive something like eight push notifications yeah. from the time that you place order in your app mm-hmm. to the time that your pizza is delivered. Because every time your pizza goes into an oven, out of an oven, gets with a carrier, is close to your neighborhood, is in your neighborhood, is at your door, yeah. they want to remind you yeah, that yeah. they're the fastest, well, that they're delivering value. Yeah. And they're thinking a lot about the psychology of waiting. And if you do not get those progress updates, it can feel longer than what it actually is. So I think even if it is the case that Domino's is taking longer than the other pizza place down the block, having those updates makes you feel as though you're being cared for, you're acknowledged, like somebody's keeping you, like your mission is going to get Yeah, you can tell the kids like, no, they just texted me their pizza's out of the oven. That's right. Yeah. You can help conceptualize. Yeah. Um, What about for Rent the Runway? Are they similar? What's their, how's their marketing experience and companion with their delivery experience? Because you have that same waiting game where you ordered something, you can't wait to try it on. Yeah, exactly. And there's also that tension of if there is a a wedding or some sort of event that you have something rented for, it is the transparency on the shipping and the arrival. Even when it's at your doorstep, you know, of course you get the alert then. So yeah, it's similar transparency, not quite as good as Domino's though. (laughs) Yeah. But I think so many modern marketers sort of miss that because they remain very like batch and blast in terms of how they billboard out rather than just reminding folks, you don't always have to open the push notification. Sometimes that's not the point. Mm -hmm. It's simply there to reinforce what the value is of the experience that you're delivering to your users. Yeah. And those are often the most powerful automated messages that exist. Mm -hmm. I think about like, I'm thinking of Delta. That's what I was thinking of. Oh my gosh, you totally read my mind. Yes, there is no better push notification on the planet. That's a stance. Challenge me on it. Mm -hmm. Find me a better push notification than when you find out that your suitcase is on the plane or that your flight is boarding. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I would not argue. So Margot, a lot of this, you know, you're talking about uh, simplify, use these great frameworks, but I'm kind of putting myself in the shoes of a client on a product team or a marketing team or an IT team. You've got all these demands, you've got timeline pressures, and you've got different stakeholders that are saying, no, this is what we need out of the app. Any advice that you can offer to the, you know, based on the the clients you've worked with and the ideas that you're surfacing here, 
what advice would you give to these teams as they're embarking on improving or building a new app? Yeah, I think so. Maybe it's just a word of <laughs> a word of caution. Is that an approach to giving <laughs> advice? Is just right. thing to, the thing not to do. So one thing that I've observed time and again, inevitably, we work with Fortune 500s. There is Conway's law, in which you see the way that teams structure themselves ends up being it's a reflection of the product. Let's call it an app at the time of launch. And so we find ourselves working with teams that are responsible for one discrete component of the experience. And there you tend to begin to lose the forest for the trees. And so I think there is a really important responsibility of the for us and for the client to continue to think holistically about the experience that we're creating. I think that qualitative research can be the key unlock to staying focused on that user experience and what that means for the end user. And I think one example comes to mind, we were working with a a fitness, boutique fitness client, and they had a wait list experience. So waiting to get into one of the classes and we did a focus group. And one of the super fans of this boutique fitness studio shared that she had a a 6am class, but was on the wait list. And the night prior, she had set her alarm to go off three times to see if she had been moved off the wait list. Because if she had made the spot, then she would get up at a different time than normal. And we shared this qualitative kind of story with our client, just recognizing how, what a huge disruption this was to this person's life and what they needed to do in order just to ensure they were on the wait list. And that was really what helped resonate and get some advocacy about rethinking of the wait list and what that looked like from an end user experience. And one of the things about, you know, when you talk about this type of research, you know, I'm not that old, but when I started my career in the agency business, in order to really talk to users, you had two options. You could kind of get boots on the ground and do customer intercepts, or you could do a focus group, which required renting a space, bringing in folks. It was an expensive endeavor that took a long time. But what I've been amazed at in our projects that we work together, how quickly you can get in front of consumers and start to yeah. test things. And so I think yeah. if you're on the product side, don't forget, this doesn't have to be a big, long cycle oh, that yeah. takes a lot of budget and a lot of time. Yeah, You can really, there's tools out there to, to talk to folks quickly. And we, oh, yeah. we use that and tool a lot. It's so easy to be scrappy with it. I know even when we are thinking about responding to RFPs, we are doing some level of user research and it could be just folks internally, just talking to them, quick conversations. You can learn a lot quickly. So Margo, I want to switch gears with you a little bit because I have two things I want to cover with you and they are both super. (laughs) Sorry, that was super cheesy. Uh, But I want to talk to you about the Super Bowl and Super Apps. Which one do you want to start with? Let's talk about Super Apps. Okay. T- yeah, I'm just going to let that be the start. Margo, talk to us about super apps. It's, what is a super app? <laughs> yeah. What is a super app? I want to really hear, this is related to trends that you're seeing in the industry around apps, app engagement. And one of the trends that you were talking about just a bit before we started recording was super apps. Billy and I are not nearly as deep in the space as you are. We are certainly not nearly steep in sort of like Asian development models that are trending. What's a super app? Talk to us. Okay. Yeah. So we were just, um, I think the prompt was like, what is happening? What are the trends? And I think zooming all the way out, when it comes to using software, it's about convenience, about making life a little bit easier. You could say at a surface level, the lack of tolerance on behalf of consumers just to have account walls, like having one password, one login. We see that trend of using social login instead of having 
all those things separated. That's super light execution. But I think in the same vein, we can talk about super apps, which is really just using one app to accomplish a number of different jobs. And that's the same jobs to be done that I was talking about. So super apps, one of the best examples is WeChat. And so Red Data Point, there's 1.25 billion active monthly users of WeChat. So if we think about just that general, let's say the job of reconnecting with an old friend, if you were to open WeChat, what you could accomplish there is you could contact them, you can send them a message, you could make a reservation for the restaurant that you want to go to, you could hail a cab to get there, you could pay at the restaurant and split it with your friend, and the list goes on. It's kind of like a sunrise to sunset capability, and you haven't hit the home button once. All of that functionality is within WeChat. The usage in China, it's out of 80, out of 100 people, 80 are using WeChat. So it's just pervasive, and that's where everybody's at if you want to communicate. So I think it's this consolidation of functionality. I think we could look at even operating systems. We see some consolidation happening there. Apple Health is an example where we traditionally think of opening our iPhone and that's the platform that we're working off of. But we start seeing additional tools that are just native in the experience. So you find yourself in one location accomplishing a lot of tasks. And so that is this kind of nature of super apps. We've had clients that have come to apps seeking to have a very high, you know, tons of functionality in, in an experience on a website, whatever the case may be. And I know I have been like, well, if you're going to do that, you have to understand there are a lot of players in this space doing a lot of different small things really well. Are you sure you want to do that? And we had a client, a media client come back and we're like, yeah, we want to do that. So I think there's an appetite on behalf of clients to say, okay, we want to accomplish a lot because we recognize there is a unique convenience being that one location for a user to get a lot of things done. Yeah. When you talk about WeChat, I immediately want to argue like, well, Margo, that's such a unique product experience. And in China, we're talking about a non-competitive ecosystem for business. But your point around Apple is exactly right. We use Apple now for our banking needs, for our money transfer needs, for um, our health needs, for our wallet sort of experience. Yeah on top of everything else that they sort of horizontally and vertically offer. Yeah, yeah. So interesting that that might be a trend. And then I think what you might have been alluding to is sort of like a Fox experience where Fox offers news for lots of different types of users Mm -hmm. with varying political alignment. But they also have sports, which is huge in media. And now they have weather. That's right. So you never necessarily, if you are a person who relates with that brand, have to leave that experience to get all of those different viewpoints yeah. in your day. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, yeah. so now that we're on sports a little bit, talk to us about your other super of the year. Talk to us about the Super Bowl. So yeah. I will just introduce this a bit. Willow Tree built the Super Bowl halftime show app for Pepsi this year. And starting that project, Margo, one of the things I remember was it just started fairly ambiguous. So you were under heavy time pressure and you had to create a vision for what the halftime show experience would be through an app with, I would say, like an open mind. A lot of room. A lot of room for figuring out what it could be. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. So of course, the halftime show for the Super Bowl is the most watched show, of the most watched a live television event of the year. And so the ambition, and as I mentioned, what it means for my job as strategist was to get more viewership and excitement around that show. And so Pepsi had a really bold vision of, well, let's create an app to drive more energy, tell the story of 
art, halftime artists? And how can we do that? And so I worked closely with the Pepsi leadership team to help figure out what could be possible. Our constraints were time. So we had a couple months to get something up, get it through the app store, get it approved, and then of course market it. And then of course we wanted to respect the artists themselves and the stories that they may be, may want to share. And it's, you know, it's fairly uncommon to build an app as part of a marketing campaign. So we really needed to think about, well, what would be novel? Why would somebody go out and download an app that's only going to be used for a couple months? The thing that was really wild is that we had QR codes on half a billion Pepsi products driving downloads to an app, yet we hadn't built the app yet. So we needed it to be good, that's for sure. And so we had a lot of fun working with Pepsi to think about what kind of content could be in this space. You know, why, why would somebody you know, go to the app to look at this? Is it exclusive content? Is there something unique? Do you get prizes or whatever the case may be? And so what we ended up building was a content management platform that released content um, kind of every few days or so that was unique to the app. And then, of course, it was posted on social and other, other platforms. So it was a lot of fun. And then I think maybe one of the highlights was creating a behind-the-scenes experience during the halftime show. So if you had the app open, you could actually use, you know, you're using your gyroscope of the, your, your, your device to look around the stadium for the show that is airing live streaming. So it was just, it was unreal how you could see all the camera people on the back of dancers and you could look around. I found myself kind of looking back at the, like the production of the halftime show more than even watching hmm. Eminem on stage. You know, I was like kind of missing it. So I had to rewatch the actual halftime show after it was done, but it was just really neat and a behind the scenes look that had never been given to viewers before. Did it work? And I have to call yeah. out that, Margo, when you started this journey of, okay, we're going to build this experience, you did not know the artist so and, no. and who the actual performer yeah. was going to be. So naturally, you'd love to build all these features that are built around you know, a certain star. And when we were working on that, it's like, your guess is as good as mine in terms of who yeah. it's going to be. And so the ultimate constraints. But the other thing, and working with you on that project, time constraints, endless content constraints, you still use those same frameworks that you talked about That's earlier. Right. So it's, I think it's easy to say like a jobs be, to be done framework is really for when you have plenty of time and you're set out to build out this long project. Yeah. But it, it really, it's in a vacuum. It, it was kind of a tight, hey, I'm still going to go back to these fundamentals that, of how to build a great experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right, Billy. It's a good reminder. I remember we had as part of our strategy and when we were in flight, we had used that language of what job is this app going to help the user, the fan do? And it's, I can be entertained. I can play. I can win. We're trying to think about what is that language of from one fan to another? Download this app because you can. And it was really important to understand what that coffeehouse conversation was between friends about what this app did and to make sure that there was a logical path there. And again, I ask Billy and Margot, did it work? Yeah, it did. Not to kind of brag on, on us too much, but heck, I love bragging. Uh, I think we had 500,000 500, concurrent live streams. The app has been recognized already. I know I'm looking forward to the future awards that it, that it wins. and One of the top performers in the app store. Yeah, it was awesome. Right. Yeah, we're really proud yeah, of it. Yeah, spent some time and, and I think the second uh, spot in the app store right behind Coinbase who had the infamous uh, QR code <laughs> ad. So, hey, yeah. we can deal with that. I'm hoping that we'll have somebody from Pepsi, one of our partners from Pepsi on the podcast to kind of talk about 
how that app vision fits within the the kind of larger scale marketing engine that is Pepsi. So heck yeah, it worked. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Margo, before we close, we always like to invite our guests to talk positive trash about a brand that they love. Curious if you have a brand you love and why. Oh, I sure do. Um, so I've already gone on about my love for travel. I think it's really important for all of us to get out there. I think the pandemic obviously changed routines significantly. I was very fortunate. I just came back from Portugal. It was so good to shake off the cobwebs and get on those cobblestone streets again and see the world. It was awesome. But one of my favorite travel and hospitality brands is Airbnb. And I've been a fan for a long time. I had heard about Airbnb way back when they were first starting and had applied for a job in 2010. A little like unclear what they did, but I wanted to do something relating to that mission of getting people out. And actually, I think there's a lot of value in living and traveling and visiting where people, locals actually are versus going to the tourist strip, which I think Airbnb does a really great job with just in the mechanism and the operation that they have. So in May of this year, Airbnb rolled out one of their biggest redesigns in a decade. They did a lot of interesting things to help with that decision paralysis of choosing a property to go to. They kind of grouped properties by villas or castles or whatever it might be to really get your wheels turning about a, a journey you might want to go on. But I think they also did some really interesting new features of just recognizing the shift in the way we travel post-pandemic. Of course, there's a lot of people that are working in formats that they never anticipated, many people working permanently remote. And so Airbnb observed this huge trend of their users, their travelers, going on extended length journeys, so a month or more. And so in order to fit that and recognizing that people are curious travels, they want to move around, they introduced this concept of split trips or split stays. And so ultimately, this allows for people to split a long-term, longer vacation into multiple properties, yeah, cool. and but seeing that holistically as one trip. And so you can imagine if you're going to go to the Southwest, uh, they have this opportunity so you can look at multiple properties on a map. You can see this animated line between different locations. So a home over in the Grand Canyon and another home over in Diane National Park, whatever it might be. And you can see how those relate to each other and what that distance would be between and then ultimately you go through these booking flows to support each of these stays. Awesome. I think it's just clever. And it's the way that we are traveling. That's the mental model. I'm going on a trip to Southwest um, and Airbnb just kind of pivoted and allowed for their platform to serve that. Yeah, they're a great brand. I think yeah. likewise, their marketing is really enviable because they're so thoughtful about where people are in time and space mm -hmm. and what they need. So to your point about like you get off an airplane and you're so excited to be in a new country or a new location there's also a lot of vulnerability in travel where you're like, okay, now where am I supposed to go? What numbers am I supposed to put on my passport visa to hand to security in a moment? And then what do I tell my taxi cab as far as like my destination and where to go? I don't speak the language. And I think Airbnb is really great at anticipating what those milestones are going to be and surfacing just the right information at yeah. the right moment. In addition to sort of having this more waterfall engagement model where they're saying, hey, it's October. Do you want to go to a haunted house? We've got those. Yeah. Do you want to see a castle? Like, how do you create an experience that's timely and relevant? So I love yeah. their pairing of both. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're doing great things over there. Billy? Margo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think, you know, we could continue to, to chat with you for forever and ask questions uh, uh, forever. I think um, one of the things I wanted to call out, that jobs to be done stuff we talked about. I know if somebody 
is saying, oh, I'd, I'd love to get my hands on on that a little bit more. I think we have a document that outlines how to go about that and how to how to use that framework. So feel free to reach out to to us. And Margo, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. We love talking with you. And thanks for giving us your time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. 